Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Sarah Marshall is the co-creator and host of the award-winning podcast, You're Wrong About, which was named Podcast of the Year at the 2022 iHeartRadio Podcast Awards. You're Wrong About revisits what we think we know about history and cultural events that have lodged themselves into our brains and how that compares with what actually happened. Marshall sat down with me to talk about how she got into podcasting in the first place, why she and co-creator Michael Hobbs started a Patreon a year later, what it's like identifying more as a talker now than a writer, and what she has learned while touring her podcast with comedian Jamie Loftus. I also might have learned just what I've been getting wrong about both podcasts and comedy. We definitely learn how Sarah Marshall feels about the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance. And now that that's out of the way, let's get to it. You're kind of a kindred spirit to me in terms of we're both journalists who have been slightly sidetracked by our side hustle. <laughs> you know, you know that the hustle just reaches out and grabs you and pulls you in an alley and you're like, oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think this is the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out I'm a talker and, and not just a writer. Yeah. And then also uh, apologies in advance for asking this question and sounding like my mom. Not that you know my mom. Uh, so apologies to my mom for even bringing her into this. But for my first question, how is your book on Satanic Panic coming out? <laughs> oh, I know your mom because she's my mom. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the answer to that is that like the pandemic hit and then I was like, oh, my brain is going through some changes. Um, as so many of us did, I think. And I really like forgot how to read and write for a while, you know, or like technically I knew, but it was just like, it, it it was like trying to thread a needle with no depth perception. You're just like, well, I feel like I should know how to do this. And yet here I am unable to do it. And I feel like only last fall that I, that I really start writing again and kind of do, you know, write an essay that ended up published in the believer that kind of was a project that I started and was able to finish. And so I feel like it's like, it's unfortunately been contingent on my ability to, to come back to my writing self, but I feel like that's the part of the process that I'm in and I'm really enjoying it because it is like, I don't know. I think there's also, you can work with words as I'm, I think you can work with anything just like too much. And then at a Mm. certain point, it's like very difficult to see them for what they are. And you have to kind of, I don't know. I'm, I'm at this point, a big advocate of taking a break from the thing you built your identity around. It's probably, probably would help. (laughs) <laughs> so maybe I should just end this podcast now <laughs> and start something else. Just be like, uh, and then we, we took a walk. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, it is something that's still on the horizon for me, but it's just like, it was such a process of being like, I like trying to force something that isn't available to you. It's like at a certain point, I think you just have to concede that it, a process is happening and you have to be patient with it. 
Yeah, no, full disclosure. I think I might have said the words to my parents. I want to write a book about comedy in 2010. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we are talking right now in April of 2023. So, yeah. Who, who knows when I'll actually finish, finish this book <laughs> when you're listening in the future. Both of us will have written this book. But Satanic Panic was the first episode of You're Wrong About back in yeah. May of 2018. But that's not your origin story. And I get the sense, I mean, I know the, it's another thing you wrote about for Believer back in 2014 about Tanya Harding, that is mm-hmm. the origin story for the podcast, right? Yeah, yes, because uh, Michael Hobbs, who founded the podcast with me and whose idea it was and whose initiative, you know, this initially was all because of, he was writing for HuffPo at the time. Um, and he HuffPost or, stands for the Huffington Post, which used yeah. to be a popular website. Yes, famously <laughs> back. But it's all. I was like, I was thinking the other day about because I started writing publishing publishing online in like 2012, okay. and at the time, like there were like viral articles, which I know that still happens to an extent. But it was like that was the era of like, yeah, we're just going to set up a website where we pay ordinary women criminally low amounts of money to talk about the, you know, most fucked up thing they've ever done in a parking lot. And, uh, and that was like a business model that worked for a while, which is now very quaint because like now you have to, you know, be lip syncing to Megan Trainor. (laughs) But yeah, so Mike was working or actually, I don't know if he was there when he initially reached out to me because I published the Tanya Harding article in 2014. That was the first thing I published that really felt like people I didn't know were reading. And it was the result of like many years of kind of impassioned bar speeches um, for me. And so Mike read it and really loved it. He sent me this anonymous note on Tumblr, which I like remember receiving. And I remember it really touched me and there was no way to get in touch with him. And then he uh, reached out in 2016 because he was at HuffPo then and wanted to, uh, it was like, I like your writing, you should submit. And it was just like, I never had an idea normal enough for them, but I knew that I liked his writing as well. And we were in touch. And so when he had an idea to do a podcast, revisiting misremembered history in early 2018, I was the person that he reached out to about that, which I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I imagine Tanya Harding probably wasn't the the first the first news story or subject that that really an- annoyed or like percolated in your brain. <laughs> Do you remember what the first the first moment when you you realized that everything you were being told was wrong? Wow. 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 I mean, okay, this is like the first thing that comes to mind, which is ridiculous, but I feel like does demonstrate something. When I was I think in 3rd grade, we all mm. there was a day where our teachers were like, all right, we're going to the computer lab and you're all going to write a letter to Socks the Cat. It's the Clinton's cat. Mm. And I remember just being like, this is insane. This cat's not going to read these letters. Why are we doing this? (laughs) And then actually recently I was like looking, I forget what for, but I found this book that was like letters to Socks, America's children, write letters to the Clinton cat. And I was like, oh, that's why we were doing that. It wasn't because... It was purely an episode, and 
an experiment in wasting our time as children. It was because our teachers wanted to be part of this equally meaningless press release type thing. And like, I don't know, I remember just like as a kid, these moments where adults would just be like, you have to do this thing. It's very important that you do it. Everyone write a letter to Socks the Cat. And like, so much of it metaphorically was like also writing a letter to Socks the Cat, like, because, you know, because cats don't read, famously. <laughs> um, the only time they show an interest in literature is when they want to stand on a book you're reading so they can show you their little butts. And also, even if Socks could read, think about the amount of mail he's receiving. There's no point. And just like, yeah, this feeling in the 90s growing up that like adults were that like most of the stuff they were working really hard to make sure that we did was like already clearly a waste of time and how that makes you doubt like everything else they're talking about. Mm -hmm. It does that. It also reminds me of a couple of things. One is that that socks book was light years before Tumblr. (laughs) Because when I think of Tumblr, what I think about is not, all of its current iterations. I think about the period, especially with with respect to comedians, where they were get, they were selling, they were getting books published, but all of their books were crowdsourced, hmm. much, much like the socks thing, where it's like they set up a Tumblr that had this theme, but everything <coughs> on the Tumblr was contributed by other people. Yeah, yeah. So. Right, and, then the, and then we were, it was like this exercise to generate content for the sitting president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you see no royalties or anything from it. Yeah, um, come on. It's a raw deal <laughs> for the kids. <laughs> and then the other thing that you, your sock story reminded me of is so many of the early episodes of You're Wrong About are about these things that we, if you're Gen X or a millennial, you grew up hearing these stories or these these urban legends and we just all kind of latched onto them at some point they just became fact and yeah. not debatable so yes yeah and i think that there's oh go on i'm sorry no no go ahead i i think there's something like very that i mean yeah the the, the reasons that people latch on to the things that they do are always so fascinating like in terms of our lifetime pursuits and I I just still remember the feeling of being a kid who like you felt like you knew what the truth was but you were absolutely powerless to get anyone to listen to you about it like whether Mm -hmm. it was like parents teachers other kids who were like sure of their own uh ideas and you know and certainly as a kid like I had my own share of arrogance about stuff because that's one of the things that keeps kids alive because they don't have a lot else going for them survival wise But yeah, I guess the feeling, like, I think the universal feeling of childhood in America, where it's like, you know, inevitably, I think way more than people uh, are willing to hear about. And what do you do with that? As And how frustrated do you choose to still feel about it as you enter adulthood? Yeah, one of those urban legends, speaking of comedy purposes, I got involved in comedy professionally in the mid 90s when I was living in Seattle. But even back then, I remember being fascinated, one, by how many comedians would just casually drop a Richard Gere gerbil Mm. reference joke. Yeah. But then it it really stuck in my head, and I was like, well, somebody started that. 
Yeah. It came from somewhere. Someone was the first person to like send this idea out into the world. And then it just grew a mind of its own. Yeah. like a gerbil stuck in someone's rectum. <sighs> yeah. Um, and that is like, those things are so fascinating, right? Cause it's like, it was always Richard Gere and it was like, and I also feel like culture kind of coalesces around these things where it's like, cause if you make that joke, right. It's like, it's not really like, and people, and if people laugh at it, like, are they laughing at it because it's funny or are they laughing at it because that's their way of saying, I remember, I know the thing you're saying. We're all together and we all know it. We're a group. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How much of comedy is just nostalgia and reference points? Yeah. Oh, or or that meme of Leonardo DiCaprio. uh, (laughs) Yeah. When I I finally saw that movie, it was a couple years after that meme came out. And I was like, and then I did the meme at the meme <laughs> and it was a real moment <laughs> very very meta when you wrote the piece for believer about uh, tanya harding you were teaching at portland state university i was what were you teaching i was teaching uh composition okay which was just like which was fascinating because we had i don't know what the levels are now or if they're the same but we had there was like writing 121, which was like basic sort of freshmen. If the freshmen are like in a track where they have to take a writing class, but that's what they take. Writing 222, which was the research paper. And then writing 323 and you would get assigned that and you'd be like, what's 323? And they're like, I don't know. I don't know. Figure it out. It's something. <laughs> and like, nobody knew what 323 was. And you just like, mm-hmm. you would get in there and wing it. And I feel like you know, this is not the endorsement academia probably wants, but like, if you want to work directly with college students with no supervision and also get paid like a quarter an hour, then you should be a, a graduate student, a teaching assistant or an adjunct because, because I, because I was a, my title was grad assistant. And like, you might imagine that that means that you like a professor teaches and you kind of watch them and then you grade their papers. But no, they're like, you're 22. You're going to just teach a bunch of college students who you were very recently one of how to do the thing that many people most fear in the world. So just, yeah, have fun with that. And to me, like the constant challenge and the thing I most wanted and found most elusive was just like, generating conversation and getting people to talk to each other. And like, I was one of those hippies who made people sit in a circle. (laughs) Well, I, I I was wondering when I, when I found out that you, you were a grad assistant teacher, especially coming from where you are now as a journalist, who's questioning everything as a teacher, did you question the curriculum or did you, were you a by the book? I no, I was very I yeah, I've I I I feel like I'm sure I had by the book moments, but I was of the opinion from the I mean, it also helps that it was a writing class, so you ask people like how to teach writing and they're like, "Ah, hard to say, you know. Um it's not like chemistry, I think, where you can be like, "Well, of course, first you I don't know, memorize the elements and then do do I don't know how chemistry mm-hmm. works." But like that writing is something there's a table. that like there's a whole table. there's a table there's a whole table and then presumably other furniture as well but like <laughs> you know that writing that writing feels special to me because it's something that like 
people who have done it for their entire lives, people who have won like a Nobel Prize for doing it, you ask them about their writing process and they're like, ah, oh my God, don't talk to me about that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was, I was very of the mindset of like, I just want to like create a situation where people are talking and communicating. And I did a lot of current events. I did a lot of stuff that I feel like even now would be more fraught, but it was like 2011, 2012, 2013. We talked about election stuff. We talked about politics. We talked about, um, I spent a lot of time teaching like ads and sort of how to recognize logical fallacies and like bad arguments being made to try to appeal to you. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like like a lot of the roots of the show are in teaching because I was trying to do I was like, well, look, if I have like four hours of your time every week and I honestly don't know that much about grammar, then maybe the best I can do is like, you know, like show you how to use language, but also show you how it's being used on you all day long, every day of your life and how like the reason that you want to get better at using it is because that's that's how uh our modern wars are waged right i mean even just in the five years since you started you're wrong about the whole notion of propaganda has 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 spawned this even worse form yeah and thanks to social media and and how people have figured out how to weaponize it yeah. It's like <laughs> it feels like we're we're wrong about so many more things than we were 5 years ago. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder about that. Like I thought a lot about like at the start of the pandemic I was like maybe germ theory was just like a blip on human consciousness, right? Cuz you think of people as like we learned how germs and infection worked mm-hmm. and then we were like great, now we understand diseases. And then it's like, in reality, clearly, like a lot of people never quite took to that, you know? And yeah, this thought of like, I don't know, like the last last couple hundred years, I think have been really weird for humans because we are by nature in, in many ways, like very superstitious, very prone to ritual, very prone to magical thinking. And now it's like, I think technologically we have like, I don't know, like if we were, if you and I were around in the Renaissance, I feel like we would really be governed. Our sense of how the world works would be governed in many ways by how we feel it works or how like, you know, some like white guy with a court position feels things work. And then it would be like, great. How we feel is what is true. And there is a guy who's saying that planets revolve around the sun, but they just burned him to death. So we're fine. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about that guy. Yeah. Um, We probably also have a, have a lot of things wrong about Renaissance fairs. That's that's a, that's a separate pod. That's your podcast. That's not mine. Your, uh, the podcast, I noticed there's a Patreon for it that was started a year after the mm-hmm. podcast launch. What was that first year like when it was still just you and Michael in the wild? In the wild, yeah, we were both supporting ourselves through writing. Um, and also I was like, I was in my sort of freelance house sitter days. I would just like, I would be like, what's that? You're going to Europe for a month. You need someone to feed your goats <laughs> in a tiny town in upstate New York. Yes, please. 
you know, and I would, I, I mean, it really in retrospect, it was like a self-created kind of artist residency thing where like the, all these things that you apply for and are taught um, are going to be a part of your life in sort of writing school are like you, you apply and you get chosen to go to a weird house and work on your project. And I just found other weird houses that were <laughs> available to normal people. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's funny to look back on now because when we started doing the Patreon and we started, you know, we had a bunch of people sign up on the first day and they were really excited to do it. And I clearly have issues with like valuing my work because I had this like recurring like mental image of like literally being arrested for fraud because I had like tricked people into thinking they liked my podcast, but it wasn't mm. like sufficiently good that they actually should like it. And I was like fooling everybody. So that's, you know, oh, and kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was that the point though, at which you realized that the podcast could be the main thing and you, could put everything else on the back burner or what was the moment when, when you realized, was, Oh, this is the thing. I, I mean, it took me, I think I, I realized it later than everybody else. And I think it was really in the pandemic when we started, you know, in 2020, we made more episodes than we ever had before or will because we were doing like two a week. And, um, and that was just like what there was room in my brain for and how I was sort of showing up as, as a human being in that time. And I think, I don't know, I think it's like identity is a funny thing. Like I am obsessed with the fact that Barbara Streisand, according to a very recent interview, she's like, oh, I don't think of myself as a, thing, as a singer. I think of myself as a director and an actor who sings. Mm. And it's like, okay, but Barbara, no. <laughs> <laughs> Like, that's nice that you think that, but like right. nobody else, no one else thinks that. No one's like, oh yes, Barbara Streisand, the director. Um, but it's like, I don't know. I feel like maybe there's a tendency that I at least see in myself and Barbara Streisand to identify as the thing that it is harder to be. And what I think I love about doing this podcast and podcast generally is that like, I don't know. I think there's just like people have different skill sets and like one of the skill sets is talking. And if you're a talking person, then like you could be a comedian, you could be a lawyer, you could be a person at the bar who doesn't kick, get kicked out as often as they should because you tell great stories. Mm. Like you're in a John Cassavetes film, you know, there's like so many jobs that talking could be, but I feel like I just talking is like one of the things I'm good at. And I think it's been a real struggle to accept that that's like that that's what I am because I feel like there's more value in being the thing you have to try harder at which that doesn't make sense I know it doesn't <laughs> well of course one of the rationales that Babs if I can call her Babs uh one of her one of her rationales for for thinking of herself as a director and actor and not as a singer is probably because she doesn't tour often yeah. Hmm. And of course, now you're touring. So, oh. <laughs> Segway. Uh, remember, what did we get wrong about Segways? Anyhow, uh, Segways. 
I think uh, it was that the guy who bought the company but hadn't invented them drove his segue into a ravine. Yes. There's something to it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we definitely got that wrong. But you've 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 now begun touring, and that's part of the reason that uh, I'm privileged to have you on my podcast is you're touring with the uh, comedian and writer Jamie Loftus. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about comedy from hanging out with Jamie so often? Oh my gosh! Um, wow. I feel like what I've learned, the main thing is that I'm just like, I've been kind of thinking about comedy for a lot of my life, but like not nearly as much as other people. And that there's just, I don't know, it's like, first of all, a reminder of just how big and deep that world is and how, how many ways there are to think about getting a laugh or like going about doing what you want to do. I mean, I just like what I love about her work and what I was initially, you know, what made me so excited initially about like reaching out and talking about doing kind of live performance stuff together was that I last August, I saw her uh, one woman show, Mrs. Joey Chestnut America USA, which is like just this like dreamlike performance art show that is like very funny, very off the wall, like very, like, I think extremely accessible because it's just, like, it's really silly. Like, I think uh, most of her work is, like, silly in some kind of a way that feels really great to me. And then, like, the sort of, the, like, visual language of it over time, you're like, I don't know why this makes sense to me, but, like, there's some way in which this makes perfect dramatic sense, what's happening. And then it culminates in some kind of, like, a body thing. Um, or like, you know, she like, she has to sit there and eat 20 hot dogs. Cause that's just like the dramatic balance of the play. She just has to do it. And I don't know, it's been, it's been so like true, like such a, an amazing joy to just kind of like have now done like a few different shows with her where like, we know in a general way what we're going to do out there, but we also are just like figuring it out, like fairly close to the event itself, like what is the conceit and what are the kind of, what are we playing with in terms of like the themes or the images that we're, we're working with. And it's something where when we uh, do shows where we're kind of talking to each other or doing kind of character stuff, it's just like, we have a sense of like where we're starting from and where we want to end up, but the rest we just kind of improvise out there. And it really, I don't know. I feel like she's showing me her world and I, it feels so lucky to me. I feel, I feel like the most normal I could possibly feel when I'm like doing something gross on stage with her. And and when I'm doing normal stuff, I'm just like, is this right? Is this it? Am I doing this right? This can't be right. And you're probably, <laughs> you're probably eating up, eating uh, a lot more hot dogs now than you, than you did before. I am. Yeah, I actually, I ha- I was reorganizing my refrigerator and I have an entire hot dog condiment area and that's just my life now. And I'm happy <laughs> about it. <laughs> there is something that happens that, that changes, you know, just like they talk about how reality TV can never be real because once you introduce the cameras, it changes the, the performance. The same is probably is, well, it's definitely true with, with this because Recording a podcast, you're just imagining the listeners out there. Mm-hmm. But when you do a tour, you do the live show, everything changes because you're now doing the podcast in front of, it, it becomes an interactive 
thing mm-hmm. when you have 200 or 500 people in front of you. Yeah. 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 And which is like, I, I don't know. I'm curious about your thoughts on this, but I feel like I would rather have 500 actual people in front of me than like a theoretical, you know, untold number of people or like unseeable, unimaginable number of people because it's just like I don't know to me there's something like I definitely did some theater when I was younger and I remember like getting it and getting why it was great and then you kind of you know many of us like realize that at one point and then move on and kind of forget about it but it's like we're living in such an era of like everything can be recorded like most things are recorded. And so the idea, like one of the things people ask a lot about this tour is like, oh, so like, are you recording them and you're going to release them as live episodes, which is like, you know, a very reasonable thing to do that a lot of (laughs) podcasts do. And it certainly cuts down on work. But I also feel like I'm like, no, I feel like these are like these like special things that like they happen once and like you're there or you're not. And just the sort of the the way it feels to have like I don't know it's just like to the more I think about it the more I feel like it's one of the most wonderful things about people but it's like well it's like what do the humans do and it's like okay well sometimes at night right they go home (laughs) and then they leave the house again in the dark (laughs) to go to a big building to all sit quietly together and stare and all the people stare at like a couple of people at the front of the room. And then they just wait for the people to say things that will make them laugh together. And then that's what, that's what they do. They love it. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, that's, you've really kind of hit on the, the, the crux of the paradox of what's going on in comedy right now, where people are complaining and it's because for for so many decades, comedy was just this thing that existed as a as a temporary ephemeral thing. You went, you saw it, and it was gone. Yeah. Once you started recording it and and putting it throughout the internet, it it no longer became this thing that was just for that audience at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, anyone else viewing it takes it out of context, and they take what they want out of it when they mm. weren't even they weren't part of the thing right 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 because it's like the audience is like doing a job it's like part it's like the orchestra or something and all that right they're they're in real time approving or disapproving of what's happening Mm -hmm. they're the ones judging whether to cancel it or not (laughs) not not you watching it on netflix five years later Uh, but uh i want to bring this on home by asking you about your other podcast Mm. You are mm-hmm. good. It's a podcast about movies and feelings about movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you waiting for the episode about forgetting Sarah Marshall? <laughs> yes, I want. I know you have feelings about it. Hash it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just look. I will always be the second Sarah Marshall, and that's fine. There's actually so many Sarah Marshalls. Mm. There's a Sarah, there's another Sarah Marshall in Portland who makes hot sauce. Um, and, and I see her hot sauce around, have yet to meet her. Um, there was the first person under the age of one who received multiple organ transplants was Sarah Marshall. So, you know, we're pretty proud of that. Um, yeah, it's funny. Forgetting Sarah Marshall is a movie that I haven't seen 
since it came out and I watched it on a plane and I was like, Oh, it's pretty good. It was pretty good. But I've always <laughs> felt like, you know, I've, I've always felt like Jason Siegel just like, just, I would just like to have a sit down with him. I don't have anything mean to say. I just want to be like, Jason, why of all names? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I use, I've always used my middle initial professionally for that same very reason. <laughs> and even then, I've since found one other Sean L. McCarthy, who's a freelance journalist in entertainment, but oh he's younger than me. So uh, I'm I'm sorry, other Sean yeah. L. McCarthy. He's but, Sean L. McCarthy feast. But seeing what that movie did to Russell Brand, and now that Russell Brand has become his own You're Wrong About podcaster, does that make him officially your nemesis? Hmm. I have like seven things behind on Russell Brand news. What's he been up to? <laughs> Is he, is it anti-vax? I feel like that's a good chance he, there. Well, I mean, his brand, Russell Brand's brand now is questioning everything, which I feel uh, like is, which I feel like is trying to like stomp on your turf, which yeah. for someone who only became famous in America because of forgetting Sarah Marshall feels like a double whammy. Yeah. The, the man cannot get off my coattails. It's, uh, it's rather embarrassing. Yeah. I don't, I mean, it's actually funny to me, like how little it comes up with people with like people mentioning the movie to me the only time that this movie comes up in my life is when i'm paying for something with a credit card mm. four times a year okay. someone will be like oh your name is the yeah. same as the movie but like it's i feel i feel like i've been luckier than i expected in establishing a career where people are like i know that you are a, a different one <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that, that's pleasing to, to hear that it's not bedeviling or betwixting you, um, especially since it is your in your URL. You you have ag- explicitly yeah, acknowledged it. I do, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm, like I just need people to know that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, when the when the term McCarthyism gets thrown around, I have to go. No relation. Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, no relation. And that Mary yeah. McCarthy, I don't know. She's <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, the only one I, I acknowledge is Charlie McCarthy, the ventriloquist. Right. Yeah, Candace Bergen's brother. <laughs> yeah, he's he. we're related. That's <laughs> why so you well, got sir- that wooden arm. <laughs> well, Sarah Marshall, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me. And uh, I look forward to seeing you and Jamie when you when you get to Brooklyn. And uh, have fun on your tour. Ah, oh, thank you so much. I can't wait to to see you and uh, be gross in front of you. My live stream. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbird Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.